You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. guys welcome back to the dabble co podcast you ask and you shall receive so many of y'all asked me if i could have dr natalie crawford on the podcast and to be honest she is one of the busiest humans on planet earth and so i thought she would never have time for me but i'm so thrilled today that she's taking the time out of her truly incredibly busy schedule um, to record thank you for being here um dr crawford hey, is uh, Hey, she's in her closet. I'm, I'm so excited. In my room. We're, we're like trapping ourselves from our children. So we get it mom life, but she's a reproductive endocrinologist. She's in Austin, Texas. Um, and, and she has basically any social media channel you could want to consume your information. She, she has it. She's got a podcast called as a woman, she's got Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, anywhere you want to find her, you can find her, but today you're going to find her here. So tr- truly thanks again for being here. Oh, Claire, thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. I love what you stand for. And I'm super honored to just be here and chat and talk about all the things. All of it. We're going we're gonna to talk about all of it. So I was just saying, I'd love for people to hear your story about starting in medicine. And you started in a completely different field and just what drove you to reproductive endocrinology. Oh, and just tell people what is a reproductive endocrinologist, by the way, if they don't know. Yes. So a reproductive endocrinologist is a fertility doctor. So in short, I am a subspecialist who knows everything about hormones and everything about your body to help you get pregnant. We do IVF and all of that. I did not take a direct path to be here. So most of my peers wanted to be a fertility doctor always. That was always the path they were on. Yeah. And it's a super cool field. I, it's perfect for me. But I just wanted to be a doctor when I was little. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a doctor. And when I was in medical school, I loved everything clinically. I just loved it all. And I knew I wanted to be a mom. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. And I heard over and over, you know, back then, because I'm so old, we couldn't freeze our eggs. There was none of that, that, you know, oh, if you choose this field or you choose this, you're not going to be able to be a parent. You're not going to be able to be a mom. You need to pick something that's going to give you balance so that you can be present. And that was a big life goal of mine. And yeah. so I had some advice, not really from any mentor who knew me, but that, oh, well, you should do ER because you're good at everything. You're good Shift at your hands. Work. You like procedures. Yeah. And you can work, you know, 10 shifts a month and be yeah. full time and see your kids all the other times. And I said, oh, that sounds, that yeah, sounds interesting. Sounds good. I, yeah, I did, you know, ER rotations and I, I did. I loved the diagnostic challenge. Somebody comes in with a set of problems, correlate it all together and get to the bottom of it. And so I said, this is, this is perfect for me. Signed up and matched to my top choice, was thrilled to be at Parkland Hospital in Dallas for residency and knew like month two, this is not right. Something is wrong. And it was really a tough time because everybody told me, well, this is just entering your blues. Yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to transition from medical student to resident and, you know, you're the bottom of the totem pole and you're working so you're just getting 100 crushed. hours a week. I mean, you're just emotionally yeah, so every, you're working to, you death. Are to death. And, you know, I kind of had this knowledge in my gut that something wasn't right. But then this external force every time I brought it up to somebody that said, no, that's just the situation. And it was really a tough time. But I learned something that I tell everybody, you know, young women in medical fields all the time that this life is too short and the job is really hard no matter what you do. And you really have to have some pure passion behind it to Uh make it worth showing up and doing it in those hard moments. And I was able to realize that what I really loved about medicine was connecting with people. So I liked Mm -hmm. all the diagnostic, the nerdy stuff, but I really loved somebody 
and knowing their story and helping them with a problem. And compared to my colleagues in the ER, when they left a shift, they were done. They were living their life. They didn't think about those people again. They just knew, hey, I gave it my best during my 12 hours. All is done now. And I, that wasn't me. Did I do the right thing? What happened to them? I'd come back to the next shift and try to look up people from the last and see, did they get admitted? Did they go home? Did they come back? Did they live? Did they die? And that constant not closing the circle was a big light bulb moment for me that I want to be a part of people's story. And I want to really know that this probably says a lot about me, but I want to know that I'm helping them with this problem, you know, that it's me who's helping them get through it. And so I went very nervously, you know, most people do not do things this way, but I'm a big believer in jumping without a net, just like make a decision and go for it and then let the other pieces fall into place. So instead of trying to figure this out on my own, I went to my program director and was really clear and said, I've made a wrong choice. I I love the program and the people I work with, but I'm not meant to be an ER doctor and I don't know what to do. So that was, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go be a reproductive endocrinologist. I was like, I don't know what to do, but this is not it. And he was a very kind man who said, you know, you're a great resident. I'll give you great letters of support, but why don't you complete out the year so that we can not have to pull people to cover and I'll, we'll change your schedule on your non ER months and give you other opportunities to explore what you want. Uh And so did OBGYN and kind of light bulb moment said, this is what, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I love women's health. I love the opportunity to follow women through different problems at different times of their lives. Right. This, this fits me better. And so switched and started over. So I did an entire year of ER and then switched and started over as an intern in OBGYN, which is four years. And mm-hmm. that was a hard, like humble pill to swallow. Like my oh, peers yeah. who started ER with me just had two years and they would be done. And here I am like, intern year number two, but the reality is it led me into that field with a lot of excitement and I knew that's where I belonged and a lot of insight that I also saw the fact that I really wanted to follow people through a problem and not say, oh, you have twins, go to the high-risk doctor. Oh, you have infertility, go to the fertility specialist. Oh, you have cancer, go to the genox. So I was clued in real early that a fellowship really would make me the expert of one small aspect of the field and let me be that person who solved people's problems and paid a role in their stories. And so REI fellowships are super hard to get into, Claire. It's terrible. Yeah. There's about 40 spots in the whole country every year. That's and it? so to sit here, that's it. Okay. So I'm one of 20 residents at Parkland Hospital per year in OBGYN. So I have 80 total wow. OBGYN residents. But of my 20 peers, I'm sitting here saying, I want to do REI. And they're like, well, there's 40 spots all over the country. And so I spent hours in the lab, pipetting pituitary cells, doing research projects, all these things, because I felt like that was where I really belonged. And so luckily did match to a fellowship and went out to North Carolina and spent three years there and I'm now board certified in all the things. And I've been in Austin for five years and then- Last year, we just opened up our own practice, which is huge, and we can chat about that. But my take home of this whole journey is that especially, especially for people who want to be a mom one day or who are already parents, Uh it will never be worth leaving your babies at home to go do something that you don't, aren't passionate about. Yeah. Like it really has to be something that's going to put a little spark under you. Otherwise, you'll leave it. And so when we talk about these jobs that require postgraduate training and on all this time, we want to really make sure that we're choosing something that's going to be meaningful and impactful to us so that we can feel confident that it's worth it leaving our kiddos at home. Gosh. Yeah. And, and it, it has to be worth it too. I think, you know, all of that training, like it, it's such a big decision to leave a, a residency or an, 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 your intern year but just knowing the, the short-term pain of that is going to be worth the long-term of your entire career, your family life, all of that. I mean, I'm sure that happens all the time and people just stay in it and think this is the path I chose and I've got to stay, I got to finish it out. 
So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. It is really insane. You know, burnout is huge in medicine overall, but in female physicians specifically with these non-competes and how to leave a job, sometimes you have to uproot your entire family. We see so many people just leaving medicine, just leaving clinical medicine, looking for non-clinical side gigs and other things they can do when they chose a field because they really love patients. And I think it is part of the system that's really hard. And I think that's really part of what we as women in medicine on social media can help do for other women is Mm -hmm. say, there's going to be hard moments, but there's a way to make this job and this career work for you as long as you're willing to stand up for yourself and go for it. Yeah. And I've experienced that too. I mean, over the last 10, 12 years of working, just Nobody is going to give you the schedule that you want or the job or whatever, the freedom, the flexibility that you want. It's not just going to happen. Um, you have, I mean, you have to pave that way yourself and sometimes you have to fight for it. And particularly, I think it's harder on women because there's this urge to, to please and not be seen as less than, and, you know, be seen as I'm a t- total equal, but at the same time, you know, it's just very, very different as a, a working woman and then a working mom, wife, all the, whatever you partner, whatever you are in medicine. It, it's just a really, it's a really hard conversation. I mean, I, I'm so thankful as a nurse practitioner. I know it's just easier for me to have a more flexible schedule. I know that I have so many friends who are, you know, female physicians and, and they don't necessarily have the luxury that I do of being able to manipulate my own schedule a little bit more, you know, and that's hard. I watch them go through that. It's really difficult for them. So it's, it is tough. And I think, you know, I think medicine's changing for the better. We're seeing a lot of people leave corporate based practices and opening up smaller, more personal clinics. We're seeing a rise in female entrepreneurship and ownership. And I really think that that is saying, Hey, this old standard of I'm going to work for you and you can dictate everything about me and work me to death and feel like I'm replaceable by somebody else is wrong because I'm not replaceable. I am, you know, special and bring something to the table that is really going to help patients. And I love seeing that in people, um, that they're taking that leap and getting to that next stage, but it's tough. And I've been there. I've, you know, this is my third, uh, job out of fellowship. My first one was, at a small private practice that I really got overworked at. My second one, I was an employee in a corporate place and Uh I knew that wasn't my forever job, but it was a good transition job. And then finally now we own it. And that is such a difference when it comes to running your life and your schedule and making decisions that impact your patients and really putting them at that top of the pyramid for priorities without burning yourself out. So if anybody's listening to this, no matter what, if you're, you know, a female physician right. or even a nurse practitioner or a PA, other, you need to be able to be in that position of power because you yeah. bring something really important to the table. I think any woman in, in business or in the working world really at all needs to hear that, you know, that it's anyway, it's, you have to advocate for yourself and, and get it's what's most important is you, your health, your family, and your corporate job or whatever. It's, it's never going to, be the one that's looking out for that. (laughs) So 
No, I mean, one of my most popular podcast episodes is called Girl Quit Your Job. And it's just about like, hey, leave the thing that doesn't serve you because you're right. And I was the same way. I can't leave this. That'll be a failure or, you know, I'm such just an inherent pleaser. I didn't even realize that I was doing all these things that didn't serve my young kids and my family or myself. And I was just beating myself down, trying to kind of make this environment work that was never going to. Right. So I feel like sometimes you need somebody to tell you, you don't owe them anything. Like this is your life. Take charge of it and do the thing you really want to do. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know everybody wants to hear about what you actually do. So, okay. I was thinking how, why don't you kind of give people like a basic overview of what is kind of infertility? I mean, what does that look like? And how do people start going down that path of finding out I'm having issues? I need to see someone like you. What does that look like? That's a great question. So let's just start with the actual diagnosis and then my actual opinion. So it's a disease. Infertility is a disease by the World Health Organization defined as trying to get pregnant for one year or more if you're under age 35 or six months or more if you're over the age of 35. So at that point, if you meet either of those criteria and you're not pregnant, do not pass go. It is time to get help because you're falling well out of the standard deviation for where you should. And you should see either your OBGYN or go ahead and call and schedule with a fertility doctor, an REI in your area. We are not scary. We are very nice. We have much more time than your OB does just by the nature of our schedule. Yeah. My new patient visits are an hour. And oh, wow. so we're really able, yeah. So we're able to dive down and get into your history and spend time with you. Mm-hmm. And that's often the best course of action. There are a lot of people who should seek help sooner. So a great example is if your periods do not come regularly and predictably every month, that is a sign that you're not ovulating correctly. So if you want to get pregnant, Claire, and your Mm -hmm. periods aren't regular, you should go get help now, right? You don't have to wait an arbitrary year if your periods aren't coming because we already know that you're going to need further intervention. Same thing when it comes to if intercourse is difficult or painful, you're not able to complete the job. Mm -hmm. If there's erectile issues or anything like that, do not just waste your own time. Go ahead and go in. And then I strongly recommend anybody who's 40 and above, who's never gotten pregnant, who wants to start trying, go ahead and see your OB or a fertility doctor right away, because we don't have as much wiggle room to have issues at that age. And we want to get an evaluation just sooner. And it may be that everything is normal and you go try on your own. Or it may be that we identify a problem and that it was never going to work naturally. That way we can start to intervene and get you that family that you want. We also see women for egg freezing all the time. And Uh so if you're interested in freezing your eggs, so I tell everybody, this is what I would have done as a medical student, Natalie, if I'd had the opportunity and it probably would have changed my career at an earlier stage of the game because I would have had more freedom to explore traditionally more difficult fields like OBGYN. But egg freezing is an opportunity. I hate when people call it an insurance policy because an insurance policy is something that pays off 100% of the time if a bad thing happens. Yeah. And egg freezing is more like an investment in the stock market. We're going to make a smart investment and understand the risk, but you know the return on that investment is not decided until you go to use it, right? And okay. so- It is not a guarantee, but it is an opportunity. The younger you are and the more eggs you have, the better the outcome will be. But if you're older, any eggs are better than none. The studies show us that age 32 to 33 is a great time to consider this if you're not ready to start trying to get pregnant soon. So that's usually the metric that I tell is like, hey, if you're approaching your early to mid thirties and you're not ready to start a family, but you know, you want a family one day Mm -hmm. that's one of those personal goals. And I can relate to that because that was me. Then you should consider freezing your eggs, getting an evaluation so that you can keep that door open no matter what happens in the future. So how common is infertility? I mean, I feel like, I, I feel like when people still, still talk about it as if it's, not common or, you know, I'm the only person I know that has this, but I mean, it's pretty, pretty common, right? Or more common than we realize. Yeah. So one out of eight um, 
couples will have infertility. That's the classic statistic, although current data is showing that it's more like one out of six. Hmm. I also, which is crazy high, right? So if you think of all your friend group, definitely somebody is struggling. We are seeing a trend for the good, in my opinion. When I started my Instagram account five years ago, Uh nobody was talking about fertility publicly in spaces. And if they were, they were using an alias. So nobody knew who they were. And it was very secretive about what was happening and nobody in their real world ever knew. And we've seen this huge transition over the past few years where these communities have developed on online, on Instagram, where people are sharing in their real persona, who they are, what their struggle with, and they're able to connect and provide support and resources. And I think that that's really taking some of the stigma down, which is a hugely beneficial thing because when something is stigmatized and you feel like something's wrong with you and you're more isolated, it's only compounding the difficulty of how isolating infertility is to watch your friends and family have kids and feel left behind and left out socially and really long for this thing and wonder if it will happen to you. So I love seeing the transition in social spaces Uh about talking about infertility and being open about it. And I think, you know, just look at my podcast. Some of the most popular things is menstrual cycle and very basic stuff that people have been lacking knowledge on because there's no easy way to learn it or good resources. I yeah, was say, so, not just infertility, but I feel like there's as much as social media is, we were talking before we started, I was like, I'm growing to literally like, I hate Instagram, but as much <laughs> as social media can be the, just the worst, it, it has, I think, brought forth so many avenues for not just women, but people to, to talk about things that really just, that just weren't talked about, not just infertility, but like pregnancy loss, you know, loss of a child or a baby. Mm -hmm. And even like your period, I mean, look at the period doctor, you know, she was talking about today, like can a tampon get lost in your vagina? And I'm like, we, nobody was talking about that a year or two ago, you know, and even recently, it's just, I think brought on such a change of, really particularly women taking back the the conversation and saying we have to talk about this it's not shameful and let's quit making it shameful and and put it out in the open i think that's such an important point because if you don't know what's normal you don't know what's abnormal so right. if we don't say here is the basic foundation of a tampon can't get lost and these are warning signs and you should see your doctor for this If that stuff is never discussed, people are not empowered to take charge or advocate for themselves or go help with their own healthcare. And then they're just at the mercy of whatever random doctor or provider, whoever they see, which we know not everybody's the best there, right? And so they may get a negative experience. They may not get the help that they need. And ultimately, I think it's really important that people understand their health and their bodies and how they function. And that's really basic information that we should not stigmatize and make really commonplace to talk about. Yeah. So what are a few kind of diagnosis, regular health diagnoses that you might say to women, Hey, here are some things that you might have that may need, may mean you need to see a reproductive endocrinologist sooner. Like thyroid issues, PCOS? What are some things that women may not even realize this is going to affect my fertility? Definitely. So you're hitting the nail on the head. PCOS is one of the big top ones. PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's a really poorly named disease that's pretty common. Essentially what happens is your ovaries don't respond to normal hormones well, and you fail to ovulate regularly. And the ovaries my favorite organ in the body. They Mm. love to make hormones. They're a little hormone making factory. Estrogen is their favorite hormone to make. They can only make that when you ovulate. So when you're not ovulating regularly, they start to then make testosterone and androgens. So PCOS is defined as two out of three irregular periods, having high androgen symptoms or labs, and then a certain ultrasound appearance, which shows lots of small follicles or small eggs. They're not really cysts. But so PCOS as associated with lots of metabolic abnormalities, ovulation issues, higher chances of miscarriage, and almost certainly most women with PCOS need some type of intervention. And so that is something if you've ever been told, maybe your 
younger and you have PCOS and you're happy on birth control pills, you're normalizing your hormones on that. You, when you stop the pill, we anticipate you're going to not ovulate and need intervention. So I love patients with PCOS to go get an evaluation right off the bat. So if you, we call this a preconception visit. So if you know you have PCOS going in say, Hey, I've got PCOS. We want to get pregnant. What are things we need to know? What can we go ahead and test? Another big one is thyroid disease. So controlled thyroid disease is great, but uncontrolled thyroid disease like Hashimoto's is not great. And so if you're having, I see this huge trend towards natural stuff. Now I love natural stuff. Particularly with Hashimoto's. But but particularly with Hashimoto's, I see so many patients come off of their levothyroxine and they're trying these alternative treatments and this is not the time right, if you're trying right, to get pregnant. Right. I say this is not the time. And we can debate if you should do it at other times, which my answer is going to be no. But this is really not the time yeah. because, you know, the higher your TSH goes, there's a higher risk of, you know, miscarriage, infertility, period abnormalities, but then also developmental delay and mental retardation of your child. Thyroid hormone really? is essential for a growing fetus. Yes. And babies don't make thyroid hormone until 11 to 13 weeks. So that first trimester, they're relying on your thyroid gland to oh, function. Yes. Knew? And if it doesn't function, well, we know, well, but you so, know. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but so if your thyroid gland isn't functioning as it should be because you have Hashimoto's, that's fine. If you take levothyroxine, your risk reduces to baseline, like reduces to baseline, no increased risk as long as you are on thyroid supplement. And so these people who are taking iodine drops or trying this diet thing right. or some herb, um, and this whole idea that, you know, medications are bad for you. It's really breaking my heart because right. that's something that's easily preventable. We can take a pill, your baby can have no adverse outcome, boom slash done. Yeah. And so I think that this is where we're going to take a whole tangent from your question, but I have a problem sometimes with certain non-physician based providers who can't prescribe medications, who don't work in collaborative ways. So it's one thing to say, hey, right. we work collaboratively as a group. I'm going to func- focus on natural things. But at some point, you might need a physician to write you a prescription. And we see like right. psychologists and psychiatrists do this all the time together. But if you are seeing me for your Hashimoto's and I'm a chiropractor and I can't write a prescription, right. I can't give you levothyroxine. So what am I going to give you? But Ran I can sell stuff. you a supplement that I sell in my I can office. sell you a supplement. Yeah. And then you can feel like I am treating you and you don't have to go elsewhere. And I'm not saying that all, you know, other providers are like that, but that's a huge red flag is that the person who's telling you to not use traditional medicines for a problem where they're really proven to be effective can't give you traditional medicines. So I'm always like, that's a huge red flag and you need to just think about it. But so thyroid disease, we take very seriously. Diabetes, we take very seriously. The higher your hemoglobin A1C is, which means the higher your circulating sugar is, higher risk of miscarriage and birth defects, specifically heart defects and limb defects of your baby. So again, preventable things we can help improve by being on medications to lower that down. And the other big one is endometriosis. Oh, I hate endometriosis. Yeah. Endometriosis is an inflammatory autoimmune condition. The easiest way to think about it is that your body starts to attack cells that are like endometrial tissue-like that are outside the uterus. So the endometrium is the lining of your uterus that you normally bleed off. Typically, some women will have some of these cells in their abdominal cavity and the body ignores them. But in endometriosis, it's a huge inflammation reaction to those cells and you get pain and scarring. And we see terrible scarring inside the pelvis and terrible tubal factor infertilities, anatomical disorders, and then just an inflammatory, you know, anything that's inflammation is not good. So if you think about how delicate eggs and sperm are, it's harder for them to fertilize and grow normally in an inflammatory or toxic environment. So- so what about Those autoimmune dis- disorders? Other, other like anything else, rheumatoid that you uncontrolled, say, Come on in. uncontrolled autoimmune is always a bad thing. So whenever okay. you have a history, and I definitely have, 
to me, we're talking um, quickly about fertility evaluation for other issues. We're having a designated timeline of everything's normal. Try for this long, but if not, here are the other choices. And I feel like autoimmune patients more than others tend to need to go to IVF faster very often because we need to get those eggs out of the body to give them the best chance. Interesting. I think the big key here is however you can control your diseases better. So if your rheumatologist is recommending, you know, medications for your rheumatoid, if, you know, you have thyroid disease and Hashi's that you're on medicines for that, if you've got ulcerative colitis, that you're on the right treatment for that. So, you know, really making sure that you are controlling your external diseases the best possible is hugely important. Okay. I have two questions that came to mind when you were saying that I've got, I've got to write this one down or I'm going to forget it, but, but I have to sidetrack you and say, okay, one time I recently just like very briefly, I said something in a story about like, you know, like you don't have to have your period. You were talking about periods in the lining of the uterus. This reminded me and people were like, wait, what? Meaning like from a birth control standpoint. Yeah. And I was like, I've got to have someone who knows significantly more than me explain this to women because people's minds were absolutely blown. So can you please explain how and why you don't have to have your period? Absolutely. I will start by saying I've not had a period in years and it's fabulous. Same, right? Def- same. same. Like, right? Like Delightful. not in every... OBGYN or REI that I know is, does not have periods. So here's the big difference. If you are not taking any form of, you know, hormonal contraception, Mm -hmm. you should absolutely have periods. Okay. Okay. And that is a huge warning sign if you don't. So So if you're not taking anything, Mirena, progesterone based IUD, the hormone shot, implants, a ring, a okay. patch. Okay. So, so if you're birth control, it has to be a hormonal birth control, hormonal birth control. So if you're not on any type of birth control that is hormones, you say, and you have no okay. periods, that's bad because okay. what, let's think about what happens normal. And then we're going to talk about why it doesn't matter in a normal month. What happens is that you have a group of eggs released from the vault inside the ovary each egg grows inside a follicle. The brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone, which is well-named and gets one follicle stimulated to grow. As that follicle grows, it makes estrogen. Yay, this is the only time your body makes this type of estrogen called estradiol. It stimulates the lining of the uterus to grow. As the lining grows, it prepares for an implantation. And then when you ovulate, that little follicle forms into a cyst called the corpus luteum, which makes progesterone. This is the only time we make progesterone. Yay. Progesterone stabilizes the endometrium, prepares it for implantation of an embryo. When an embryo does not implant, your corpus luteum dies, progesterone and estrogen drop, and you have a period. So on no hormones, that should be happening. And if it's not, it is an indication that something is wrong. And so things that can be wrong could include hypothalamic amenorrhea, This is where the brain doesn't send out any of that FSH hormone. So the ovaries have eggs, they're there. The brain's not sending out FSH, so no follicle ever grows. This could be due to stress, extremely stressful situations, heavy exercise, calorie deficiency, eating disorders, chronic diseases, um, a variety of factors. And sometimes it's not as bad as we think. Oh, I'm not training for a marathon. It doesn't necessarily matter. Maybe a combination of things. So hypothalamic, the brain doesn't send out any of the signals. This is an estrogen low state. I see women come in. Uh, I've one of my patients who's really vocal and I adore her had no periods for years after a brain injury. And that was what caused her to have hypothalamic amenorrhea and nobody diagnosed it. And she came in with mental cloudiness. She couldn't remember things felt like she was in brain fog, vaginal dryness, no libido, really fatigued, put her on estrogen because that's the treatment. And she feels like a new human being. Also being estrogen deficient significantly increases your risk of osteoporosis. And that can have huge lifelong implications. Women need estrogen, especially in these early premenopausal years. On the flip end of the spectrum, you might have no periods because you're an ovarian failure. I am seeing more young women go into early ovarian failure. And so what that means is that your ovaries don't have any Why do you think that is? That's interesting. Well, 
I personally think that it is um, mostly environmentally kind of contained. Like we now know there's a lot about epigenetics, which means when your mom was pregnant with you, that's when your eggs were the most susceptible. So let's call that the eighties when, you know, lots of things were happening and everything was processed and tons of chemicals and all the things in our environment. I really think we are seeing those things add up and contribute to having more younger women having lower egg counts than we think that they should. We also do see side note, you know, diminished ovarian reserve or, you know, going to premature ovarian failure passed on in families. So if your mom went into menopause early, huge red flag, please consider seeing a fertility doctor early to consider freezing your eggs. Sometimes these are passed down genetically and sometimes it's a chromosome abnormality. Like the chromosome had a random split when you were created and it could cause this. But so on the other end, so one is that your brain doesn't send out hormones. The other is that your ovaries out of eggs and doesn't respond. And the same thing, you should not be in menopause early. You need estrogen. If you're estrogen deficient, you're going to increase your chance of Alzheimer's disease, heart attack, you know, all the osteoporosis, all these bad things. Plus Mm -hmm. you're going to feel terrible. So that's one, you know, reason why the other end of the spectrum is, you know, potentially you're just not ovulating and the lining of that uterus builds up and up over time. Mm -hmm. And those endometrial cells are not meant to live in our uterus for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so they can develop into endometrial cancer. So we sometimes see PCOS patients who do not bleed because they Mm. have this ovarian dysfunction and they will develop endometrial cancer. And so these are all outcomes we don't want. So that was the very long winded version of if you do not have periods and you are not on hormonal birth control, please get help. None of the stuff I'm about to say applies to you. Now, you do not need a period every month. There's no function of the body that needs to kind of be cleansed out every month per se if you are not stimulating a lining to grow. And so all of our birth control contraceptives contain progesterone or they're a combination of estrogen and progesterone. And progesterone is that uterine stabilizer. It prevents the lining from growing. So I take a contraceptive birth control pill that's a combined contraceptive pill, estrogen and progesterone every single day, never have placebo pills, just take, 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 take. And what that is doing is giving me enough estrogen to support all my tissues and feel like a normal functioning person and progesterone to stabilize that lining. So there's no lining to bleed. So you just don't ever have to have a period. You didn't stimulate one to grow because the estrogen that you take in the birth control pill is a little bit different structural chemical. It's ethanol estradiol. Same thing with the ring. You can put the ring in and just like not leave it out for a week. Just put another ring in three weeks later. I think that's what people don't understand is what it, you know, you've got the placebo week, then you, it says you got to change it and leave it out. All these little things. And I, I just don't think anybody ever thinks to say, well, you know, you don't have to do this. You can skip the placebo week and go into the next pack and you got to kind of figure it out for yourself, but you totally, you don't have to have a period. (laughs) It's fine. No, Claire. I mean, like for, I don't know why I had one so many years when I was younger. Like there's absolutely no function to it. You can, it's not needed. And especially if you have, I treat patients all the time, endometriosis, heavy periods, you know, premenstrual syndrome, or, you know, even depression or dysphoric disorder. And I just say here, don't have a period. Just take this constantly. There's no reason you need one you're, you're great. The other end of that is your progesterone only contraception. So like a Mirena IUD, Mm -hmm. a depo shot, or some of the implants that's progesterone only. And so in the same premise, that progesterone is stabilizing that endometrium. It's probably not being stimulated to grow the Mirena or any of your levonorgestrel IUDs. There's other versions like Kalina and other ones they sometimes aren't such a high enough level of progesterone to prevent ovulation. So some women will still ovulate and make some estrogen on them. So people have really different side effects from an IUD. They may have no periods at all, may prevent their ovulation. They may have spotting or they may have like cyclic spotting and typically gets lighter over time. So most women will get to an amenorrhea or no period state. But some people still ovulate and have normal periods despite having a progesterone IUD in place. It's just totally different. Um, I think that these are all like really great options for women to know about that your period 
when you're not on any contraception is a vital sign and it's telling you how your body works. But if you're not trying to get pregnant, there's Mm -hmm. absolutely no need to have a period. And we can utilize these treatments that are out there to both prevent you from getting pregnant and manipulate your cycle, maybe make your skin look better, all kinds of other added benefits of combined oral birth control pills. And, you know, have a life like I love not thinking about when is my period starting? Do I need tampons or a cup? Like, what am I doing? Am I going on a trip? It's just this whole pressure that's off. Plus your hormones are really, really stable, which is nice too. The one caveat I'm adding here is that if you're not having periods on your hormonal contraception, totally fine. I do usually recommend that you stop those before you want to get pregnant because it's going to take your body some ovulatory cycles to start to build up a lining again. Because what has happened is we've thinned out that endometrium over time. Totally cool. You didn't need it, but now you want a pregnancy to implant. So I usually say, Hey, Consider getting that IUD out six months before you want to get pregnant, use condoms in that time period, but then we can just give your body time to make sure that your period is coming back regularly. There's no warning signs that it's abnormal because the period is a vital sign. And then also gives time for that lining to build up and be exposed to some of that natural estradiol. But also if you take your IUD out, you might get pregnant like tomorrow, right? I mean, yeah, I did say use a condom. I said yes, use a condom. Yes, yes, so yes. Um, you have to use a condom, condom or yes. not have intercourse or be okay if you got pregnant. pregnant. But I do yeah. sometimes, yeah, I do sometimes see patients who um, want to be pregnant, you know, tomorrow, pull out their IUD. They haven't had a period in five years and they're not having periods. And okay. then they're all freaked out. And, yeah. you know, then, so if you're at the, you know, we'll say three to six month mark and you haven't had a period yet, you should go get an evaluation because maybe you are treating an underlying ovulation disorder. Maybe your lining is thin and you're ovulating just fine. We don't know. So the safest thing is to say, discontinue that contraceptive a few months before you want to get pregnant. Uh Use another form like barrier protection, but then we can give your period time to present itself as a vital sign before you're behind the game or already feeling like you wish you had been pregnant months ago. So the other thing I um, wanted to ask, and you kind of touched on it a little bit talking about our like women in the eighties. <laughs> so what, okay. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, all day, every day. Are there any things externally that you recommend women who are one trying to get pregnant or two having issues with pregnancy or po- possibly even diagnosed with infertility like external things that we can control. So diet, exercise, you know, products you're using to clean your house. I mean, there's so many things that we are, are told will affect the fertility, but what's actually the truth? I mean, what, what do you actually know and what do you recommend for your patients? Absolutely. I talk about this a lot. And so let's think about it twofold and then I'll go over my recommendations. One is that when we start talking about a lot of these things, we're talking about egg quality or what that really means is genetic normalcy. Like if uh-huh. you do certain things, does it impact your egg quality or your egg number? Quality, when you're born, your eggs are held in a stage of cell division called metaphase of meiosis. But what happens is that your chromosomes are in a perfect line in the middle and they pull apart and split evenly when you ovulate. So when you ovulate in your 18 They've been sitting there for 18 years. They're pretty strong. 18-year-old proteins are pretty strong. When they've been sitting there for 35 years or 40 years, your proteins start to break down as we know they do all over the rest of our body, and we see abnormal splitting and an increase in genetic abnormalities. Environmental factors has clearly been associated with an increase of this. A great example is smoking. Mm-hmm. Well-defined is that smoking cigarettes can impact the stability of your chromosomes, cause you to have poorer quality eggs or an increase in genetic abnormalities and a lower egg count number. It destroys some of those eggs that are inside that vault. Wow. And so that has been well-defined. The other studies are starting to suggest very similar things with other toxins. Now in transparency, it's very hard to study the genetics of an egg. An egg is a single cell and you kill it if you study the genetics of it. And so it's not something where we can just run a blood test and say, are these good eggs or are these bad eggs? And anytime you have an outcome variable that's very difficult to study, Uh it means you have limited data on it or you use mostly cohort-based study, observing people in their natural habitat, what people tended to get pregnant who are exposed to X versus people who are not exposed to it, or you're looking at IVF outcome studies. So it's not perfect data and it never will be because 
until we develop an egg quality marker, we're not going to be able to do that intermediate work. But in general, we know that other toxins can impact both egg quality and number. Toxins, marijuana is a toxin. So that's one of them. So both cigarette smoke and marijuana impact your egg quality, impact okay. your sperm quality as well. In fact, a recent review just showed that men who spoke, who smoked cigarettes had an increased chance of having their partner miscarry. And that was significant and correlated with the more a man smoked, the more likely his partner would be to have a miscarriage. And so we can't ignore sperm factors either. We also want to look at other toxins that exist in the environment, like environmental toxins. So PFCs, perfluorinated chemicals are really prevalent in Teflon. Uh So that's one of the places. So actually, you know, you shouldn't cook on Teflon. You should look at stainless steel or other type of cooking equipment. We see others, phthalates and, you know, BPAs in plastics. So Uh I think a lot of people have gone away from plastics in the kitchen, but definitely no plastics in the microwave, no plastics in the dishwasher. Plastic should never get hot. So if you use plastic and you keep cold things in it, that's probably fine. It's the heat that is opening up the chemicals to be able to leach into other things. So, you know, don't be drinking coffee out of a plastic cup, things like that. And so really looking in your kitchen and I ask all my patients, go look in your kitchen and take all the things out. If they're plastic, you know, if it's something that could get hot and kind of leach chemicals in, don't put plastic in your dishwasher, look at glass and stainless steel and other options that you can have from that end of things. And then your beauty products is another big one that we're starting Mm -hmm. to see. Beauty is such a highly unregulated industry. There's a resource like environmental wellness group, EWG, and you can search certain beauty products and kind of figure out what's in there. And of course there's cleaner beauty brands. Now, you know, what we know of is a lot of the studies are looking at mice and not humans, and they're looking at eggs and mice, but it does look like these chemicals in mice have a lower egg counts than mice who were not exposed to them. And so that's not a human study agreed. It's not perfect data, but to me, well, you can control, you know, what makeup you put on your face and the shampoo you use and what you cook on. You can't control if you have infertility or not. There's so much that's out of your hand, but those things you can. So avoid toxins, look at where they are. Then we're going to talk about diet. Like what can you give that are going to help those chromosomes and what are you potentially eating that could hurt them? Across the board, red meat is not good. So yeah, red meat for anything, uh, worsens really. endometria for anything, for anything, right? It's, it's now considered a carcinogen. Right. But, you know, re- when you look at diets, diet studies also are, are hard because people eat different things. You know, people don't eat steak at every meal versus fish at every meal versus broccoli at every meal. But in general, the more servings of protein that came from animals over plants, women were less likely to ovulate and they had poorer outcomes with more animal-based products with IVF. Mm. Red meat being the kicker. So when you pull red meat out, more servings of red meat, less normal embryos, lower pregnancy rates, worse stage of endometriosis, worse ovulation with PCOS. So I tell patients that should not be in your diet if you're trying to get pregnant. I truly believe that. I think, you know, here and there, you want to have like a steak on a special occasion. That's totally different than eating red meat every day. Research really is supporting that that's not helping you. I try to say, hey, plant-based is great. There's a lot of vitamins and nutrients in plants. So if you look at your day, take, if you eat three meals, you know, can you make only one of them have animal-based products? Can the others not? That's going to automatically force you to take in more vegetables and more fruits. Right. It does look like not all animal products are created equal. Fish is not the same as steak. So choosing leaner, choosing seafood probably are better, smarter choices from that end of things. The other big enemy of the reproductive organs is sugar. So oh, the body's not sad. used to all, I know, I know. <laughs> Um, the, the body's not used to all the sugar that we eat. And, you know, unlike conventional diet culture, which told us fat was bad forever, like healthy fats are fabulous. The body loves healthy fats. Fats are really good for hormone creation. However, sugar is not. And you know, sugar makes your cells function differently, higher insulin levels and insulin resistance changes how your body functions. And as we already said, if you develop into that insulin resistant or diabetes stage, you could have birth defects and miscarriages. So we really want to think of like sugar, processed foods, red meats on the bad list, fruits, vegetables, whole grains. You don't have to be keto. You don't have to be Mm gluten-free. You don't have to kind of go crazy, but we really want to diet. Yeah. You don't have to have, like I tell everybody, I was like, I'm vegan. You don't have to be vegan. I don't care about that. But I want you to have a diet that's really well-rounded and that the base of your diet is, you know, foods that 
grow like, you know, on the ground or on trees. And then you can supplement it with, you know, foods that have a, a mother, you know, not things that are made in a lab. Right. And so we want to say like, where are these whole foods that that is really going to be the foundation of your diet. And then there are certain supplements that we put patients on, depending on your disease state, yeah. everybody should take a prenatal vitamin with at least 400 micrograms of folic acid in it. Almost every human being in the United States needs extra vitamin D. So most of my patients are on an extra vitamin D supplement in addition to their prenatal. And sunshine does not count. Sunshine does not count because you, you know, you need your sunscreen. You need to be wearing full sun protective clothing. We love having the long tops, the hat, the shade. But I also say there's all kinds of supplements and I see patients go crazy. I, I, that they must've heard that this or that could be good. And they're taking all of them. Yeah. The reality is it depends on your condition. Somebody with PCOS, somebody with endometriosis, somebody with a low egg count, they all need different things. Yeah. And then really wary of herbs that have hormonal like functions. So Vitex or chaseberry, maca, ashwagandha, like those things change how your body processes your own hormones. And we don't want to interrupt that pathway anymore. We don't want to have progesterone like analogs floating around. So don't kind of fall victim to some of that stuff that sounds really good. Like, yeah. because people will sell it like balance your hormones with Vitex. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But really you, you might be messing up your cycle and making things harder. So I, I think supplements have a place. I think there's things that we need, but you need a doctor, you know, captain of the ship, a provider, right. somebody who's looking over your whole picture, who's helping you gauge. Yes, this is good for you. No, this one is not good for you. Gosh, this is so much good information. I, um, I, know people are so thrilled to get it here at straight from you and man, just a lot to process. I hope that was helpful. I know there are definitely people listening who this was so helpful for, but thanks. So thank you. And will you tell people, cause you have Dr. Crawford has her own podcast. So basically any one sentence that she said today, she probably has an entire episode on. (laughs) Like if you want so tell people where they can find you. Definitely. The first thing I want to say Thank you for having me, but also fertility doctors are not scary. We went through a lot of training. We're very passionate about this. Right. And you should not be afraid of getting that appointment with a fertility doctor if you need one. We want to know you and help you. I have a podcast with lots of episodes. So I have the As a Woman podcast, which you can find on any podcast player. I also have Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and TikTok is the same name. And then a YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD, you can search. And that has a lot of great fertility educational videos with pictures and describing things even better. And if you're in Texas, we started Fora Fertility, which is a boutique fertility practice. It is just myself and my partner, Amanda Skiller. And so a female owned and operated shop we have here in Austin. We like to be very modern and very personal at the same time. And we'd be happy to take care of you, man. Well, this has been awesome. And guys, as always, if you like the podcast, if you like hearing from amazing guests like Dr. Crawford, share it, rate, subscribe, send it to your friends. This is how people find us and how I'm able to get great guests. So thank you so much. And I'll see you next week.